should be a little more uh, used car salesman. I <laughs> just. <laughs> Hello, my name is Tim Lapatino, author of Art of Atari. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Hi, my name is Tim Lapatino, author of Art of Atari and Pac-Man Birth of an Icon. And you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard May and I'm here as ever with Paul Drury. Hello. And I'm glad to say once again with Tony Temple. Hi. You'll recognise Paul's byline from Retro Gamer magazine. And Tony is the author of Missile Commander, a journey to the top of an arcade classic. In a slight shift of our usual focus, which of course is speaking directly with the creatives, we made the golden age of arcade gaming shine so brightly. For this episode of the podcast, we welcome a kindred spirit equally captivated by that era, Mr. Tim Lapatino. Tim is the author of The Art of Atari, a beautifully designed and comprehensive book that, let's face it, if you're already listening to this podcast, needs absolutely no introduction. We talked to Tim about the late, great George Opperman, designer of Atari's iconic Fuji logo, and a man whose vast body of work, not to mention creative direction and oversight, was as integral to the success of the company as the efforts of any others still with us to tell the tale. We drill into the graphic and industrial design language of both coin-op and home entertainment divisions at Atari and finish it with an extensive overview of Tim's forthcoming book, Pac-Man, The Birth of an Icon. As always, thank you for listening. You can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. If you're feeling flush, you can now also buy a virtual beer or coffee at Kofi. Why would you do that, you may well ask? Well, the podcast is a labour of love, produced in our own time and on our own dime, and while it will always be free, we simply don't have the time to produce a kind of subscriber-only content that might ensure the project pays its way. That's entirely on us, of course. We've chosen our path and we're staying the course. But if you like what we do and you simply want to express your appreciation, then the URL is ko-fi.com forward slash TDE podcast. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Tim, we've got something in common. Um, We both admire the work of George Opperman, whose firm Opperman Harrington was hired by Atari a few microseconds on the world clock before they became Atari, um, transitioning as they were from the name Syzygy. And... Opperman Harrington was, of course, responsible in 1972 for the famous Fuji Atari logo. Um, could you start, Tim, by giving our listeners a little pricey, um on and of George and how his firm came to work for Atari and perhaps of those years leading up to his joining the company full time in 76? Yeah, absolutely. George Opperman came in first as a freelancer on the basis of knowing uh, George Farrako, I believe, who was sort of an art director slash engineer at the time at Atari, and he had recommended Opperman Harrington 
you know, Atari was looking for something to really professionalize their identity mm. and their logo as they sort of had moved on from the um, era of Pong, where they were doing a lot of their graphics in-house. And they wanted somebody who had industry experience, you know, design experience to design that logo. And when I was researching Art of Atari, it was really interesting. That was really the place that I sort of entered the Atari history world because I'm a creative director as well. And I was always fascinated by that identity and also by, you know, who did all this work, who was doing this art director work and, you know, all roads led to Opperman. So he had this career, you know, in editorial, in illustration, in corporate design, you know, they were designing logos for all kinds of other companies and were hired by Atari to do concepts, you know, multiple concepts, which is the way this typically works, right? Is you yep. you come in, you design logo concepts, you present them to the client, and that's what comes out of it. And apparently, we don't have a lot of records on this, but apparently they hit it off and they really liked his work and the relationship continued until Opperman decided to close his firm and come in and work for Atari full time. Yep, sure. Um, we know that George was quite the Renaissance man at Atari, renowned not only for his talent being both a great illustrator and a graphic designer but for his leadership skills and work ethic and there's a fantastic pull quote in your book taken from an 81 promo video where george says we like to think everything industrial design and graphics do contributes to making every atari game an adventure for the player and this for us on the ted dubney experience is i guess a perfect distillation of what makes this particular era of um, video game design so unique that is to say you know, back in those days, most video games were not just for software. It was it was about the whole, you know, the entire immersive experience. Mm -hmm. Would would you concur with this, Tim? Yeah, I would. And I would say that was somewhat by design and somewhat by necessity because you mm -hmm. have very simple graphics. You have an, a lot of audiences who really don't know computing from a hole in the wall. Right. You know, they don't they're not familiar with video games. And there's you've got I think at Atari, they felt like there had to be a way to pull people in who were not familiar with games and give them some aspect of the excitement, the energy, and things that they were familiar with. I mean, you look at the history of early Atari design is so many places, in so many touch points, they're looking for something that has an, an analog, little a, you know, in the real world, the size of the cartridge was similar to the size of an A-track. The size yeah. of the box was particular. You know, yeah. they were finding all these design touch points. Even you look at the uh, console, they were borrowing pieces and parts from high-end audio equipment, you know, stereos and that kind of stuff. Mm. So I think that that was part of the thinking of how do you bring people into this world, you know, inside video game world. And George Opperman came from outside of that world. And I think he really understood what it was like to be an outsider. I think it's interesting. You see different artwork or different design done by some of the companies that had spun out of Atari and it feels very insidery. It feels like something, you know, there's a little bit of a navel gazing there, whereas it feels very video gamey. Whereas the work that he had commissioned and the work that, you know, George Opperman did feels very much like editorial design and illustration. It feels like corporate design of that era. And I think that was actually a real positive. You know, he sort of came from outside of this this new world and to bring, you know, these common touch points, but also like a level of professionalism that a lot of the other companies did not have. I find it interesting that George was eight years older than um, Atari co-founder Nolan Bushnell. Um, I think it's safe to say that Nolan was not exactly known for his lack of confidence. Um, so 
although we read nothing but glowing testimonies from from Nolan around this time and and posthumously um, from working with George, do you do you think the influence and wisdom of a more experienced hand served to perhaps turn down the gas a little with um, with Nolan? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and Nolan gets a lot of either credit or blame for taking credit for a lot of things that maybe he you know. He didn't do, sure. but one of the things I think he did really well was when he, when you got into sort of this circle of trust, as it were, he would let people run with it. Like he wanted to find very good creative people. And once you were, you know, sort of knighted in that way that he was happy to let them run with it. And I think that's what he did with, uh, with Opperman and building his team. I mean, this is stuff that, you know, maybe he had impact, maybe he had some ideas about it and, you know, from his past. But he really let George Opperman sort of professionalize this mm. in a way that was not happening both in, in industrial design, but also in graphic design and graphics and marketing, you know, pre-George Opperman. And George, George obviously had had a, a background in combining um, industrial design and graphic design with one of his previous firms. I think it was G, was it GVO or GVO? Yep, yep, GVO, that's right. Right, right. So he, so he knew what he was doing in that regard. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting time in design where... Today, you you have this hyper-specialization. You know, you have some people who are illustrators and that's all they do. Yep. And you have some people who are, you know, very much working in three dimensions. But because those things hadn't splintered off as much, you had some more mixing and overlaying. But George Opperman was, you know, one of those, you know, it's American way of thinking about it, but a Pete Rose sort of player manager, right? You know, he could jump in and grab the, the assignments that he wanted to do and he would design and illustrate, but it also... He knew how to get the most out of his different illustrators and team members, moving some people from coin op to home, you know, from, you know, arcade to, you know, home illustration. Yeah. But, you know, he also figured out how to sort of build out those teams as they grew. Mm. And obviously, I suppose now you mentioned that it's worth bringing to the fore the fact that or at least anecdotally, the, the, the coin op division and the home division of Atari did not always see eye to eye. Is that what you've what you gather as well from speaking to people. You know, I think that happened more on the programmer side. Right. Whereas I, I think that that sort of division was a little more diffuse for the artists and the marketing folks because you saw people like Steve Hendricks move from one side to the other. Yeah. You know, even some of the industrial designers were able to give input in different places. But, you know, I think it's interesting because once the Wild West period, yeah. the very early days where you've got things like the fiberglass cabinets and the super custom yokes that stuff started to standardize just because this became a professional you know tighter ship they're going okay we're going to go with a standard cabinet we are going to you know we figured out that this is the size that you can pack the most of these into an arcade you know all those things that happen when an industry starts to get mature then you see people moving you know especially some of the industrial designers kind of jumping ship and moving over to consumer where the really interesting quote unquote things were happening yep. because they were trying to figure out how do you design and build something that fits into the living room of the 1980s. We've talked in more general terms. We talked about the Fuji logo, of course. Um, just just opening this out really broadly, if you had to pick some examples of George's design work to really showcase his talent and vision, as you actually have had to do so with your book, uh, but just for the just for the benefit of our listeners and listening to this alone, if they haven't seen your book, what would you cite? Which which examples of his work would you say, hey, this is George Opperman, perhaps above and beyond the, the Fuji logo? Yeah, you know, I think George's talents sort of break into three places as I would look at it. One, you have sort of the cabinet art and you see the side artwork. 
right? That is, you know, designed for maximum attraction, right? Really bold and colorful, but also simple and easy to mass produce, right? And at a large scale, those things are not small. Mm. I think the Missile Command cabinet really is striking. It uses a very minimal color palette. The graphics are bold. You see nice thick lines, you know? So I, I think that is one of the things that really stands out for me. I mean, you said the Fuji logo, but I think all of George's um, identity design, as we call it, you know, logo design, it's all, it feels very much of like the late seventies and early eighties in that you see a lot of repeating colored line work. Mm. You mm. see a lot of bespoke typography, mm. you know, very rarely do you see, um, you know, the Atari logo is a little bit of a, you know, an outlier, but the other ones, you see a lot of bespoke typography, custom lettering that really feels more than it does read really well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. It's, sure. Sure. Yeah. Right. You know, readability is less an issue more than attraction. Right. So giving people this feel. And then I think you, then you look at like the sort of the painterly illustration style because he was literally painting this stuff. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I've got to say that, you know, the Missile Command home artwork, which was also used for, I think, the flyers on the coin-op, is just really beautiful because it screams space and futuristic and 70s all at the same time. You know, it has that Buck Rogers almost feel to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it truly is beautiful. Um, of course, George sadly passed away in 1985. Um, and speaking to his legacy uh, and that of Atari as a whole, you know, Atari were obviously the the key players, if you like, when it came to the, the visual style of this, um, you know, golden age of arcade gaming. Um, and we had programmer Dennis Coble on a few episodes back, and he told us that Atari were the Cadillacs and that all the other companies were the Chevys. Is that a bit harsh, Tim? Do you do other coin-up companies deserve uh, an equal amount of acknowledgement as Atari for this? Time. I think for me, I'd probably sort of agree with Dennis. I mean, there was other companies that had great games, no question about it. But mm. Atari was at a different level because they were controlling the whole experience, right? They were thinking through how all these boxes looked lined up on the store shelves. Yeah, they were thinking through custom illustration. They were, you know, they were working through how do you, you know, what are the other accessories that you build that we're going to sell, like a you know home console cabinet. You know, all these things, they were looking at this from a 360 degree view, which made them feel more like an entertainment company rather than just the maker of video games, sure. which I, I think elevates Atari. And I think that's why people remember Atari. You know, people have asked me since uh, doing this book, hey, wouldn't it be cool to do a book about the artwork of Intellivision or, mm. you know, some of these other companies? And I'm like, hey, that's super cool. Do you like that? That's really great. But mm. it does feel like it's a diminishing returns. Atari was very much the gold standard. And everybody, I would argue, and I don't think this is a hard art point to argue, that everyone else was either following or trying to zag away from what Atari was doing, but Atari completely set the bar. Let's let's talk literally about your book, about the art of Atari. What what for you was the impetus um, behind this this project? What what galvanized you to um, to move ahead with this in the first instance? It, it was two things actually, because so I'm a designer, right? That's my my training is in design, but also in writing. Sure. So I really connected with the Atari logo and the Atari packaging. And I was always curious, who was it that did one of the most iconic logos of the, you know, the, the 70s and 80s? I mean, mm. in my design world, people know who the designers of the Apple logo are, the Nike swoosh. Sure. Like these are, so there's sort of this pantheon of corporate identity design. And the Atari logo, I'd argue, is just as recognizable as those, but no one talked about George Opperman. You know, there was a name attached to it, 
but there was nothing in, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the annals of design history. And I was really curious about that. Mm -hmm. So I started looking into it, you know, and that led me to some of the artists like Cliff Spone, who did, you know, I think almost 20 pieces for the Atari 2600 box arts. He did a lot of work for the Atari home computer illustrations. He actually did some work for Apple as well. Mm. And I, I think I mentioned this in the book, Steve Jobs tried to hire him full time. And he was like, yeah, I don't know if this, this fruit computer company is going anywhere and decided to stay as a freelancer. But, you know, so I, I knew of Cliff Spawn and I happened to, I wrote something about it on a blog post back in the, I think it was 2009 or something. Mm. And I got a, a message out of the blue from a woman who was also a graphic designer, much younger than me, but said, hey, that's really cool that you, you liked Cliff Spawn's art and some of these other guys like Steve uh, Hendricks. She's like, I actually grew up down the street from uh, Cliff. Would you like to meet him? Oh, wow. Would you like to get an introduction? Yeah. And I was like, well, absolutely, yes. And we had a phone call. It was a, it ended up being a two-hour phone call where Cliff and I were just talking and I would ask him about all these different boxes and all the illustration and why he did this and what he remembered about this. And I I remember just filling out this, this yellow legal pad, scribbling all these notes because it was not my intention to have an interview with him. But we got on the phone and Cliff just kept talking, mm. you know, and he kept having he had such great recollection of why he made the choices that he made, you know, what, you know, oh, I did this version, but I didn't like it for home runs. So I did it again, you know, and I told him it wasn't good enough. I mean, all these great little anecdotes. And uh, he was really articulate about the process. And I, I remember hanging up that phone. And I was like, holy crap. If anyone else connected to Atari has any stories like this, I could put these together and and it could be a book. Mm. So that was like the very first moment that I was like, oh, maybe this is more than just, you know, a flight of fancy or my own little personal satisfying my curiosity. Yeah, sure. And you also, you also, you also spoke to uh, Evelyn Seto, didn't you? Um, who worked alongside George, uh, you know, prior to joining Atari, one of his previous companies, but he, he brought her in um, to his Atari team. Well, you know, Evelyn is awesome. And she, like the book would have, would have been like 20% as good you know if not for her i mean she introduced me to so many people mm. she had so much feedback you know we talked about that time what it was like to be there and, you know and evelyn's very articulate you know there's a lot of artists who you interview and they don't have any particular insight because their sort of skills are you know less verbal yeah but you know evelyn's a great communicator but also i think this is also part of her role you know being a graphic designer in a company like that you touch all these different roles. So, yep. you know, you end up working with the photographers, the illustrators, the art directors, the copywriters. So she was in the middle of this web of people. And she was like, hey, would you like to be introduced to this person? Did you talk to this person? Hey, don't forget this. Oh, Tim, you got this totally wrong. Like, you know, and that was, I mean, it was instrumental. So she was my linchpin, Wow. you know, going all the way back from George to here. And I, I remember at one point, uh, we were talking and she's like, I couldn't remember the name of the photographer who took all the photos of the art for reproduction. But then I found him. He said he'll talk to you. And I'm just like, wow, you're just doing all of my work for me. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was amazing. I mean, it was it really the book would have been much less just because she helped make all these connections and helped me put this all in context. Because, you know, the scholarship, the history that was already written out there was not about the marketing or the design or the art. It was very much about the making of the games to the exclusion of all this other stuff. And, you know, I would never say that I'm, you know, smart enough or even experienced enough to talk, you know, you know, in an intelligent way about the actual making and developing a game. But I can talk about the creative process because that's what I do. 
And that was, I felt like I could actually bring a little bit of thinking, especially even though there was, you know, 30 plus years separating our careers. I very much felt like I'm, you know, I've been in Evelyn's shoes, so we could talk about those things. And it made a lot of sense to to both of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were talking the same language. Um, So your your book spans 40 years of the company's history. Um, You know, we've touched upon this uh, a few questions, but did you start to recognize distinctive periods, if you like, over these decades in terms of art style with Atari? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and you heard this in the anecdotes as well from the artists. You know, at the very beginning, they were looking for talented people to sort of set the style, Mm. right? You know, and they try artists out like Cliff Spawn did some and people really connected to his artwork. He had this this artwork style that felt very much like another uh, well-known illustrator at the time, David Grove, you know, and uh, he, but he did it in this different, a slightly different fashion. And then Atari saw that, you know, he did two, three, four, five, six, ten pieces, you know, and this is just in the first couple of years that the 2600 is out. And then they said, well, mm. you know what? We're going to make way more games than than Cliff can design. We need a broader team. So he actually mm. sort of unofficially helped some of them sort of ramp up into this style that, you know, includes montage and sort of overlaying action and sort of this idea of drawing into the drawing and then sort of painting it out. So you were sort of removing, there's almost this reductive process where you take some lines and you put put them down and then you take them out so it feels organic and almost you know things you do with photoshop today but he did them you know in with paper pencil and you know paints and stuff but i think so you saw you sort of have the cliff spawn era and then you have people like steve hendrix and hiro kimura and some of these people who came a little bit more from illustration right out of school you know now you start to see you know hero's style is very cartoonish where he brings this airbrush quality to it you know, it's a lot less editorial style, and now it feels more like you would see in album covers of the era. You start seeing, you know, he does these things with, you know, airbrushed chrome, and his characters are a lot more whimsical and cartoony. So then you sort of move into that, and then when Atari starts to focus on, you know, arcade translations, now they're bringing in elements from existing, you know, games, right? So Galaxian sort of needs to look like Galaxian space and, you know, somewhat there's a, now there's a benchmark a little bit for these designs. So you see a little bit less creativity. You see a little bit more character focus. And then I think you very quickly see as Atari starts to struggle Mm. and then you see the sale from Warner. Now the budgets are cut because you see the boxes are only two colors. You see Mm. black and white manuals, you see a general cost cutting measure. And I think the quality of the art specifically goes down, at least in terms of, uh, you know, the home console work and some of that's just budget. And some of it is just, you saw the loss of leadership there. And, you know, as they start cutting people, but also you need a a George Opperman type to sort of champion that stuff. And someone who's not just going to take his place, but you see somebody who has that weight of experience, you know, he came here already, you know, mid-career, right? You know, so he's got a track record and it doesn't matter how much money somebody like a Nolan Bushnell has made, you know, like, hey, I we created this hit game and, and this, you know, super popular platform. You're still talking to somebody who's mm. equal in that way. And mm, I think mm. as that changes, I think you see the power and the influence of, you know, the art marketing go down and then you see the rise of R&D. You see, you know, the programmers having a little bit more of a say. You see, you see some changes. I wondered actually, uh, Tim, if you can settle something for me, um, specifically with regard to uh, the pole position too 
cabinet artwork and tony and i were talking about this um relatively recently it's this for me personally it's it's a real favorite and we didn't really know whether this would be somebody like cliff spawn but working in a slightly more graphic style if you will you know tailored for the actual you know for the specific purpose of it being quite eye-catching and bold um or would it be would it be barney huang who 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 did the pole position two artwork you know i'm not sure about that one because it's a one it's, it's a one thing in your book you've got a beautiful picture of the of the environmental sit-down cockpit but it's not there's no indication of who did it right well you know and that was <laughs> one know? of the ones that we you know that was a big question is like do we guess at some of this stuff mm, or mm. do we just say you know we're going to say what we know we're not going to claim well, we don't know, um, but I, I'm not sure about that one, but okay. it, it really looks like, you know, it was somebody on on staff. I don't think it was George Opperman um, at the, you know, no, it wasn't even based no. on, you know, some of the earlier design. So I'm not sure. But, you know, it's it's funny because I tried to do some of this work sort of in public, as it were. You know, people knew I was working on this book, mm. you know, in the sort of classic video game community. So people would ask me, well, you know that. The Space Invaders uh, artwork is totally based on the Boston album artwork. It's the same person, right? And, you know, and, you know, and people really, I mean, like, I would just get emails out of the blue. Like, you know that, right? Mm, and I'm like, mm. no, you don't know that either. No, sure. Like, you know, really try. I mean, it's it's funny to see, you know, everyone wants to connect the dots. And I would like to, too. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I was not there for speculation. You know, I was really trying to add to the, his, you know, the historical record and not not make any missteps. I mean, researching now a few different video game books, you see how one little half truth or one misunderstood thing like can just blossom and just become solidified as fact. And I really didn't want to add to that sort of thing. Tim, I, I wonder if you can go back a bit. You, you've sort of touched on this slightly, but I, I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about how the illustrators at Atari during the 70s and 80s actually approached their work. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it was an all-analog process. Mm -hmm. You know, and each illustrator worked differently. You know, some of them would, you know, start in pencil and then go straight to airbrush. Some, you know, were working, you know, you had to work quickly. So, you know, acrylics were often very popular because they dry very quickly. I, you know, it's really interesting because you look at the history of illustration and the amount of time that they had. I mean, really, Atari was very, very flexible in terms of what they were able to do. You know, they let these guys, you know, they had a lot of time to work on each piece. You know, sometimes it would be a week or two, you know, a full time work, which is really, really awesome. I mean, if you're an illustrator, I mean, obviously they were doing this all hand rendering, you do a concept. So you do an initial concept sketch, you know, you'd show the art director and say, Hey, this is my vision for this. And that would be generally something you look at in terms of layout. How does it fit on the box? What is the visual focus of this? Mm -hmm. You see people like uh, Cliff Spawn, who always tried to work a circle into his designs. If you can, if you look across his work, it would, you know, whether it's a tennis ball or a sun or something like that, he had some sort of circular element that he would make sure that would be part of this. And he sort of, it was like a, a hallmark of his, but- uh, Oh, interesting. Yeah, you know, I think each of them, you spend a lot of time on a piece like that. So you see people hiding stuff in there. I think mm -hmm. in uh, Cliff's, uh, I think it's Indy 500, 
he has some of the the names you know of people and birthdays of like you know children his daughter things like that you know because you're gonna hide all the stuff because you're working a lot you're gonna work on all these different pieces right and they're working pretty large mm-hmm. so because you know the larger you, you work the easier it is to photograph this stuff and getting really nice details once you actually shrink it down like it looks even crisper it looks better you know all the detail is there so they're all working physically right, right. and then you know you so you get the concept sketch and then sometimes they would even go and do a color color comp right you do a, another rough version using that layout and you do either with markers or you know something else that's just fast right the idea is to, to get the color blocking down and figure out basically what are you going to do in terms of color you mm-hmm. know where's the what's the palette going to look like and then they would go for the finished version and sometimes there would be revisions there and the funny thing about that is now today you know i get a client and says oh you know you need to change this or that great you open up the digital file and it's not a big deal, right? You know, you're, I'm going to create a V2. Right. I'm going to change this part. I'm going to bring it into Photoshop. But here, if uh, you wanted to like change the expression of Elliot on the ET box, which has happened to Hiro Kimura, he actually had to paint another head and then paste it in, basically cut out, mm. paste these back in. So you actually had to do a really nice job of getting it back on there, you know, and physically it had to fit the same space. And, uh, you know, there's lots of little things like that. Sometimes you had to do the whole thing over. And that's just part of the, you know, part of the process. But, you know, it really depended on who I was talking to. Some of the artists would go right to the programmer and say, I want to play the work in progress. I want to know what it's like. I want you to tell me about the game. You know, and I imagine that some of the programmers had a whole backstory in their mind. Some of them are just saying, hey, here's the game mechanic. Right. And then others like Cliff Spawn, who was a little more old school, and just say, tell me what the game is. Right. It's video Olympics. It's tennis. It's, you know, home run. Mm -hmm. And then it was just, it wasn't about capturing any sort of bit of gameplay as much as it was. Give me the feeling of that. Like, you know, if you have three blocks that are moving, you know, three squares that are moving around the screen with a line down them. I mean, you know, you're kind of call that video Olympics or tennis or something. You need that sort of connection that, you know, I call it that imagination gap, right? The idea that you're going to connect people to the gameplay because the gameplay might have not been like anything they'd seen before. So they were really just like, okay, make me the most amazing, exciting tennis layout. And you're going to have a ball that's blurring. You're going to have people grunting, you know, and having their faces contorting with effort. You know, all that, all those little details to make it feel like actual tennis. So, you know, maybe a little bit of that is going to kind of ghost onto your experience of playing the game. And, and so at what point did technology come to the fore? Are there any early examples of, of software that was used to create art at Atari? You know, for the ori- for that original, like, you know, leading up to uh, Atari being sold um, to the uh, the mogul, the computer moguls, now my name, their name is... Uh, Jack, Jack Tramell. Tramell. Oh, the Tramells, yeah. Yeah, leading up to Atari being sold to the Tramells, I mean, all this work was really done the same way. You know, it was very much analog. Mm-hmm. It was very much done by hand. Um, you know, the production processes got better. And I think that was the interesting thing, getting to talk to some of the people who were on the production side of like, how did they make sure that the colors matched and how did they improve things like having, you know, foil on the boxes, you know, foil blocking on the boxes or having spot colors or, you know, silver, you know, metallic printing, like those kinds of things improved. But I mean, it was really very much the same way until you really, until you hit, the mid nineties, much later then you see people starting to experiment with the earliest painting programs and doing things like really trying to reproduce what they were doing by hand. Mm-hmm. 
But, uh, you know, I mean, that's really long after what I would consider the heyday of Atari. Mm. Yeah, it's worth it's worth just mentioning here that, you know, Photoshop wasn't even a thing until 1990. So, um, right. And if you used any of those early versions of Photoshop, <laughs> you'd see why. I have, I have, I have, <laughs> I have. Yeah. yeah. And, and a more sort of general point, do you, do you think something was lost when, when artists were able to increasingly rely on technology like early versions of Photoshop to produce their work? You know, I don't know if I, I think good craft is always going to be there. Mm-hmm. I think it's a question of what do you do with it? Right. You know, I think we I mean, you look at movie posters are a good example of this, where we went through in the 90s. If you remember uh, movies like the the 20th anniversary Halloween movie where you have all these floating heads on a a black background and they're just photos of people's heads. You know, it's part of a trend saying, Oh, we can cut heads out really easily now. And instead of having some illustrator render these and having the famous people approve these likenesses, we're just going to take photos and we're going to just plop them all on there. Right. And it's going to be very focused on photos, right? Because we could, that was like, you know, you have a hammer, everything's a nail, Mm. right? So everything moved to photography. But I think, uh, you see great illustrators like Drew Struzan and uh, some of these other Alex Ross in uh, comic books who maybe they sometimes they use old school methods. Sometimes they don't, but they very much, you know, their craft always rises to the top. So I think I think it's less about the tools, especially as the tools are even better now. If you want to paint something realistically, you can still do it on a tablet. You know, I think it shortens some of the, you know, the time that an illustrator has to take. I mean, I know some illustrators who use, who will build a 3D model of a person and then use that as a guide to draw and paint over. I mean, so they're using the, you know, other technology to sort of supplant the parts that are hard about this. But I I don't think it's interesting that you ask that because I don't think artists have won in this, in this way, because some things take less time. But, you know, it doesn't, you know, if you're an artist or a designer, you're always the last person on the totem pole, right? You know, so however rushed something has to be, you're the last person standing. So you're the one who's going to get the crunch time. You're the one, hey, can you get this to me tomorrow? You know, like artists, you know, it's not like we introduce computers and artists have so much more time to work on this. Now there's just an expectation that you do more in the same amount of time. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think in general, you see you see this sort of energy and this feeling with these original illustrators. And I think it's, you're looking at people who had a real mastery of their craft, right? You know, and then mastery of the tools. And I think if you look at even some of the best digital artists today, I think they are also share that thing. So in any, in, I think in any time period, there's a reliance over reliance on either a particular style or a particular tool. But I don't think that was just from the move to computers. Tim, you mentioned the imagination gap earlier. Um, this is, for me, a sort of core part of the golden age, um, if we can call it that. Um, when I show my kids some, you know, some early 80s arcade game, you know, they, they sort of start off from a slightly dismissive point of view when they look at something like Missile Command. Right. Um, and I think, you know, when I was 13 playing Missile Command, I was saving the world every time I put a coin into the machine, whereas my kids are obviously comparing something like Missile Command to, um, I don't know, Fortnite or, you know, Grand Theft Auto, right. where all of those gaps are filled in for you. You really don't need that much imagination. You, you just put the disc in, put your headphones on, and suddenly you're catapulted into a 4K world where individual blades of grass can, you know, sway around in, in the wind. But of course, the art was very, very important in terms of connecting players to you know, those two dots moving up and down the screen. Um, Can you expand on that a little bit in terms of 
arcade imagination gap and home imagination gap and and, and maybe where those um uh, uh, some some differences might lie yeah you know i think some of it is about that overall experience now the experience of video games is sitting you know in your chair in your on your sofa in your living room or in your bedroom and you have a you know sort of main line to that experience and the rest of the world is sort of closed off whereas you look at like the arcade games that we grew up with you walk into an arcade and you know and it's just a different world right you have a bunch of people you don't know around you and you know maybe it's dark in there hopefully and you've got the carpet that's glowing under the black light and you walk up to a game like tron right you know i think this is the idea of sort of crafting this whole experience within a physical space, you know, the, the joystick is glowing, the the uh, the marquee is backlit, you've got these beautiful graphics that are just popping off the sides, you know, and that sort of wakes you up and it sort of gets you, puts you into that space of, you know, I'm, I'm about to have a different experience than the one that's three feet, you know, from me. Right. And I, I think, you know, connecting with a physical, I think there's a physical part of our brains, right? You know, that we have physical experiences, the touch of a yoke, you know, the texture on the Atari 2600 joysticks. I think all those little micro experiences add up to something that, you know, maybe all those parts don't add up to 100%, but they connect you in a different way than, you know, you're going to engage with a game on the Nintendo Switch in the same same way every time, right? You know, you've got that controller, you're, you know, you're moving to the icon on the screen of the little chip, you know, that you've downloaded. Whereas you know, playing Satan's Hollow versus playing Tron versus playing Missile Command, you know, or, you know, the cocktail version of Warlords, all those are different, right? right? And they feel very different. And I think, you know, necessity, I think we look at necessity and we look back and like, oh, it was clearly better. You know, well, it had to be that way because that was the, you know, that was sort of the game, right? You know, that's where you lived out video games. But I think at the same time, the reason why we're talking about those, those games still today is because those multiple touch points connect with us in a way, you know, and I think you see this generation looking for, you know, other kind of physical tactile experiences Mm -hmm. that take them out of that, you know, and maybe that's why people are really into the idea of VR, you know, even more than the actual, how it works out. You know, I I think the promise is yet to be delivered on, but everyone's really interested in, but really the original VR is real life, right? You know, and that sounds like a super old man-ish thing to say but i think it's true i think you're absolutely right and and i guess also at its very basic level the design on an arcade machine is an advertisement um in much the same way as we all walk into a into a supermarket and we need to make a decision about which which brand of um detergent we're going to buy to wash our clothes this week you're you're you know clearly there is a whole industry in drawing your eye towards that that bright packaging you know yeah. when a teenager walks into an arcade in 1982 with four quarters in his pocket which machine is he going to drop his quarter into and there i guess atari had the edge well and i think there's two parts there right i think there's the advertising part of it look at me look at me look at me i'm i want to get your attention but i think atari's genius was they created graphics that sort of connected you and made you look but then also they were a tease they were a little bit of the gameplay they were part of this overall brand experience of this game that gave you a little bit more insight as you're walking up to that cabinet and saying okay you know i'm learning a little bit more about what to expect this feels different and distinct than that game over there Mm. you know so you're doing both of those things and i think that you know some of the games they were just like okay that's a nice looking cabinet but i go back to tron you know which is not an atari game it's a midway game but it really you know in 1982 
that game felt like, oh, I'm about to enter the digital world, right? You know, there's, you know, there's these little touch points that are telling me a bit about what I'm about to experience. And also, well, they are definitely getting my attention from across the room. Yeah, for sure. What else do you think the um, artists had to think about just in terms of populating a blank wooden cabinet? You know, it sounds super unsexy, but some of it is just the practical considerations of budget. Mm -hmm. How many of these are we going to make? How many colors of silkscreen are we going to print on here? Like, you know, you add more colors, you add more cost. Mm-hmm. You know, how quickly do you need to get these through the production line and how complicated is the art? There's really a skill of designing artwork that was designed to be printed in two and three colors, you know, at that scale. Right. You know, and I think the best artists do that. So I think some of them are the practical considerations. Some of them are just like, you know, how do you differentiate yourself? And this is interesting because it evolved. I think early on, you know, we had, you had different cabinets and different configurations. You had different joysticks. And then very quickly, you saw that a lot of these games are getting bought and you know put in arcades with all these other games. Now the side art starts to become less less of an important thing because Atari gets the feedback, right? That, well, we're just going to squish all these games next to each other. So now you're going to focus on the marquee and you're going to focus on the bezel. You're going to focus on the kick plate, you know, all those things, uh, you know, and it's so it's sort of this moving target as the industry informs it, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, Atari is, hey, we want to sell games. And we want to attract people. It's weird because it's a business to business relationship, right? You know, Atari is trying to please the people buying these games, but the people buy, you know, purchasing them from Atari, the owners and operators want people to walk up and play these games, but they have very little control over that, right? You know, they're at the they're beholden to the Ataris and the the Namcos and the Nintendos. That, that was something I was, I was going to touch on in that what became clear over a period of time is that all of this effort on, on side art was arguably hidden because as arcades got more populated with cabinets, as you rightly pointed out, um, side art got hidden from the public view. Um, I wonder with something like Crystal Castles, where they did artwork on the front of the cabinet, whether that was a deliberate attempt to address that? I think it was. I mean, I didn't find anything specifically about that, but you see, you know, in some of the concept sketches and how many iterations, it looks like Atari is moving towards, you know, either more immersive cabinets, you know, the big ones like the Star Wars, or you think about something like the environmental Tron one, where, you know what, we are going to build something so ridiculous and awesome that the owner operators want to make it a showpiece, right? And they want to sort of quote unquote waste the square footage because, you know, whatever this game costs 50 cents or something and they want it, it's going to justify its space and we're going to put it out in the middle so you can see all of it. I mean, like, you know, the, the Star Wars, you know, the cockpit. I mean, there's nothing like sitting in that thing mm-hmm. and feeling like oh, I'm now in an X-Wing or whatever. You know, it's so great. But, you know, it's like they were learning the rules and then breaking them themselves. What I find particularly interesting about Atari's cabinet design is that no two cabinets look the same. And I don't mean in terms of art, I mean in terms of the actual canvas, the actual design of the cabinet. Um, So something like a missile command is very distinct to something like a millipede or a centipede. They, They all had their own design. And I wonder if that was a deliberate decision rather than going with a model like Century, which broadly had one cabinet design, but the only thing they changed was the actual artwork. Yeah, you know, I think talking to people like Barney Hung and uh, other people like that, like they sort of paint the picture that they were still just figuring this out, Mm -hmm. right? There wasn't a lot of research or data for industrial designers on things like human factors. 
you know, what's the average height of a person who's going to play this game? What's the average arm reach? I mean, this is all stuff now today. If you were designing something like that, you have that information. They had none of that. Right. Right. So they're making guesses and they're saying, well, you know, you see them, you know, there's a couple of pictures of this in the Art of Atari where they build these plywood mock-ups and then have somebody sit in them, right? And they're, you know, trying to figure out even what is the average height of a person, you know? So they're trying a lot of different things. And, you know, in some ways they're trying to be strategic and throw things against the wall and see what sticks. But also like things have not calcified and codified into a way of doing this. And I, so I think there's a lot of flexibility and a lot of slippage. And when you're somebody like Atari backed by Warner, you had, they had time and money, mm. you know, a, a bit of a, they had the the leisure ability to sort of work these things out. Whereas, you know, you know, Centuri, you know, smaller companies are going to be like, okay, we've got a cabinet that works. We're going to go ahead and do that because it's sort of a budget requirement. And I think, I think also, especially under George Opperman, I think there was a, having somebody who really cares about the creative side of it and really selling a concept and telling a story, you know, they're not going to be, you know, unless budget is a huge overriding issue, they're not going to be super satisfied with, let's just, you know, one and done. And we've just figured it out, you know, really trying to make these things unique, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's, you know, and I think they had the ability to do that, especially in the early days, Yeah, I think, which I think it really makes these things feel like portals, you know, the games in, you know, 1976 feel different than the games in, 1982 and it's just this fun evolution yeah i agree and and, uh testament to that is the collectability of atari arcade cabinets now we did you know we we love to collect and restore these things because they all they are all so unique in terms of their design and the the artwork that adorns them right you know and it does feel like that you walk up to one of these machines and you do feel like you're sort of transported back not just because the first time you saw one was in a smoky arcade you know, in 1983, but also because they do feel different from each other. You know, they're sort of like siblings or cousins or something like that. And each one is a little bit different experience. Whereas, you know, I mean, pick a console or pick a, you know, the interface until you get into the actual game, that experience of sort of bellying up to that, that play experience is different. I mean, this sounds like a sort of a random example, but I think of uh, Tengen's Nintendo cartridges were black. Right. You know, and like you, you got all these great Nintendo cartridges, right. You know, in the NES era, but then you got a 10 gen cartridge and it was black and shiny. And my thinking is, I think they actually were sort of tying back to the Atari era because of the roots of that company. But, you know, you have this, this sleek black thing and it's like, suddenly what well, this game may be the same, but it, it feels really different. Like those little bits of experience really add up to something different when you actually sit down and play the game. Yeah. If I can just kind of interject here um, a little, uh, just something that occurred to me is most Atari cabinets have their own, just like a good genre movie character, like a like a good Star Wars character. They all have their own silhouette. Mm. Um, they're all unique. You know, you, you you see the side profile without any of the artwork, and you know if you if you know anything about them, you know what cabinet that is more or less. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a like a tentative character design, right? Well, people yes. who you know like creating a, a unique silhouette. And I, I don't, it's hard to tell if that was done intentionally. I would, you know, mad props if that was the thinking behind those in, in the Atari age. But hey, you know, that would be pretty cool. I think it certainly contributes to their collectability, uh, at least in this day and age. Totally. Right. They each have their own personality. Um, so, Tim, uh, just to finish off my bit, um, it would be good to get your top three Atari arcade side art designs. Oof. Oh man, you're going to put me on the spot here. I am. Huh. 
Um, well, Missile Command is going to be number one. Yeah, right? I think Missile Command is number one. I, I, it's the right answer. I got to say... <laughs> my, my interview's finished. I got to say Crystal Castles is probably, uh, you know, number two. Just because it really... You look at the side in the front of that game, you don't necessarily know what's going on there. But it is very much an extension of the game, right? You know, and even if it looks pretty different, you know, I think that's I think that's something. Now, this may be a little off off uh, topic on this, but I think my number three might be the Superman pinball cabinet. Okay. Because, I mean, it's just such a massive and kind of, you know, really intricate, you know, Atari's pinball. I'm not a pinball expert by any stretch of the imagination, but Atari's pinballs are just these really weird old beasts you know it feels like somebody who doesn't really make pinball making pinball and they, they have you know think about what is the the huge one that is hercules yes which is obscenely large right you know i mean just really really crazy how big that cabinet is but the the superman one i just it feels like not only does it feel like an atari game the style and the layout of the art and the, the play field but it also feels like they've captured something of the 1970s superman you know, and I think that's hard to do. So even though that's not exactly an arcade cabinet, maybe it'll give me that one for my, my top third. Tim, you've got another book coming out this summer, Pac-Man Birth of an Icon. Um, so I'm going to start by asking, why do you think after over 40 years, is Pac-Man still such an icon? I think it's a great question. I, you know, for me... Pac-Man is omnipresent, right? Mm. You know, I was born two years before Pac-Man came out. So I don't ever remember a time when Pac-Man didn't exist. But I, I think there's two parts. I think the game is part of it. It's just, And this is pretty well-traveled, you know, ground. I think it is just a simple, fun, difficult game. You know, it's challenging. It's fun. You can walk right up to it and play it. And, mm. You know, my, my five-year-old gets it. You know, he even has some of his own strategies. You know, you don't have to, you come with no knowledge. You don't need it. But at the same time, it's not an easy game, right? It's, it's that great, you know, Atari coined it. It's, you know, easy to learn, difficult to master. Mm. And Pac-Man is just a masterpiece of simplicity in that way. I mean, it yeah. could be a much more complicated game. It doesn't even use all of the technical tricks and, you know, bells and whistles of that era, you know, and that's a deliberate design choice. So, but I think, you know, that's number one. I think number two rests firmly in sort of the pop culture awareness of Pac-Man, right? You know, and I think this is this is why I wanted to be part of, you know, co-authoring this book is that Pac-Man is a great game, but there are a lot of great games from that era. I think the second half of that story is not the creation of Pac-Man in Japan. It's what happened once Pac-Man sort of lands in the United States, Midway licenses the game and it takes off. But, you know, I mean, hey, Space Invaders is a great game, too, and it sold crazy amounts of cabinets. We're not talking, you know, there's no one walking around saying, hey, there's a Space Invader over there in that pond, you know, or, hey, doesn't that piece of uh, pizza look like a Space Invader? You know, no one's doing that, right? Because Midway sort of had the foresight when this game starts blowing up that, you know, we could license this and we could turn it into something much more than it is. So you get breakfast cereal and, you know, TV shows and bed sheets and sleeping bags and pillows and action figures, you know, and all of these things that continue on. You get this, you know, the kind of crazy Pac-Man sequels yeah, of course, and yeah. Pac-Man suddenly becomes a stand in for video games in the culture. Right. I mean, go, go to the early 80s and, you know, anytime someone's, you know, bashing video games or talking about video games, 
Hackman becomes the sort of, you know, the icon for video games. That's, let's pick that up because um, I believe you are a Chicago boy. <laughs> so I think you're rather proud <laughs> that the, the role that Midway had in that. First, I think something that, I mean, I didn't really realise is that we assume Pac-Man because we're Western and we certainly embraced it, that it must have been equally as possible in Japan. So first, can you sort of explain this, that it wasn't quite the hit in Japan and it was really due to its success in America and Europe. Can you can you expand on that? Yeah. Oh, no, you're 100% right. I mean, Pac we don't have exact sales numbers of how Pac-Man did in Japan, but it's probably somewhere on the order of 16,000 cabinets. Right. Like, I mean, this is very much a moderate success. I mean, not a failure. You know, it did well, but <laughs> hey, okay, we're moving on to the next thing. And, you know, I think everyone was, you know, everyone in Japan was taken aback by how popular it was. And, you know, they did not have the licensing. They did not have, you know, the the popular interest. That's that's fascinating. There's, of course, this famous story, isn't there, that George Lucas, you know, he, he had the foresight to realise that I'd, I'd like to have the rights to Star Wars merchandise. And they're like, really? Yeah, whatever. Okay. Was this a bit similar with Midway? Is that they they saw this as a, as a huge money spinner, not just the game, but all the spin-off stuff afterwards. Do you think they saw that? I think it took a little while, but I think Midway had a sense and they were sort of primed to take advantage of something like Pac-Man. But it really, one of the characters in this book that you know is about to come out is Stan Jiraki, who is the head of marketing at Midway. And he sees this game. You know, the, you know, the other guys are like, eh, okay, it's another game from Japan. But we also like some of these other games that we've seen. That one doesn't stand out, but he finds something about it and he kind of champions this game. And very quickly, they find out that, yeah, it's, it's getting pretty popular pretty quickly. But then also someone comes to them and said, hey, we'd like to make some T-shirts, you know, and then, they, well, OK, that's weird, you know, and OK, you know, hey, these guys, they like money just like anybody else. But very quickly, they they get a vision for what this could be and they start the licensing. And so they they had sort of very quickly gotten a sub licensing agreement from Namco, which Namco's like, you know, we don't want to deal with the headache, you know trying to do a global marketing program. It didn't make any sense to them for a game that sold, what, 16,000 uh, cabinets. So, you know, they're like, great, you know, you run it. We'll get our cut, you know, do what you need to do. If you need to show it to us, you can show it to us. And then they just went gangbusters. And it, it would have been very easy for them to say, you know what, what are we doing here? We're game makers. Let's just make some games, right? But instead... <laughs> They're licensing it for things like Pac-Man toilet seats, and uh, which <laughs> yeah. never happened, by the way. And I'm really sad about that. Uh, oh. Apparently, there was a prototype of a Pac-Man. That toilet was it. Seat. Yeah. Yes. That... Open up, and uh, you you could do the math. <laughs> that was well, thanks for that beautiful image. Um, do you think then that the legacy for of what Midway did with Pac-Man is not only relevant to Pac-Man, but of kind of all video gaming franchises to follow. Oh, absolutely. Because it's character-based. You know, it has a rudimentary story that they can build on. They had a a family, you know. I mean, and I, we can talk about Miss Pac-Man. It's hard to talk about Pac-Man without yeah, talking about Miss yeah. Pac-Man. But Miss Pac-Man, the big innovation there, mm. not just that it came from outside of Namco and Midway, yes, but the cool, idea yeah. of sort of building on this family and you have this implicit storyline these relationships with these characters. Well, you know what makes, you know what's great about character relationships is now that's something you can put in uh, licensed storybooks and records and, 
you know, a television show. Cartoons. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes, yeah. That's, I mean, of course, it's interesting that Miss Pac-Man, we have had, we've been fortunate enough to talk to Steve Galton on a previous show, but that, of course, that, that was developed in America. It was America, and to some extent Europe, that took Pac-Man to its to its heart. Now, uh, I'm very pleased that you pointed out what a good game Pac-Man still is, because it, uh, apparently you spent all of 2020 playing it. <laughs> um, so my first question is, why the hell did you do that? Is that is is that your way of surviving the pandemic? Yeah, or I'm a glutton for punishment because I'm not even a good Pac-Man player. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, you know, like, okay. I, that was, you know, I started that project. So the project's on about uh, 365 Days of Pac-Man, which I started at the beginning of 2020. You know, obviously not knowing that we were moving into a shutdown and global pandemic. But it actually <laughs> ended up being the perfect, you know, project that you could basically do in you know indoors yeah but for me it's like you know i was fascinated with pac-man but you know much like atari i'm really interested in sort of the the pop culture result of pac-man because i'm a terrible pac-man player but i wanted to get a sense of what is 40 years of a game franchise you know and i use that term loosely what does that look like and what is it like to try and immerse yourself so every day I would play a version of Pac-Man or I would pull up some kind of crazy, you know, Pac-Man sticker books or plush Pac-Mans or puppets that don't really look like Pac-Man. You know, every day and I would do some research and I would talk about it and it ended up being really good, a, you know, good warm up for this book, but also getting a sense of how Pac-Man changed. And I think mm. the fun thing for me is that Pac-Man sort of, in the most part, occupied this sort of wild west, especially the first half of that 40 years where you know today let's say we're going to license you know a video game we're going to put it on action figures and greeting cards and think you know bed sheets and things like that well the way that works in licensing today is you get a pdf you get original art so that it all looks the same so that if you're doing a call of duty action figure you already know what colors you need to use here's what the characters need to look like you know it's it's very you know you're sort of restrained, you know, under the principles of, you know, good IP brand management. But, you know, in the 80s and 90s, that was not the case. You know, those best practices were not there. So Pac-Man looks all kinds of different ways, you know, whether he's on the Atari 2600 or whether the game is, you know, in a small, you know, desktop version or in a, you know, record he has a crazy, creepy sort of, you know, Sort of, you know, drug-addled voice. I mean, there's just all kinds of weirdness. Well, he has been he has been popping a lot of pills. Literally, would have it. right? Um, I am. Um, I did. I mean, if any of our listeners is that, please do uh, have a huge amount of fun exploring Tim's Twitter account, which has got all these crazy. I really like the origami Pac-Man that you were uh, that you did, and and that you you dug out a photo of Michael Jordan at college playing Miss Pac-Man, right? I've just, there's so much there to enjoy. You said you immersed yourself in the game. I want to know, is did, did you end up sort of dreaming of mazes and dots and waking up humming the theme to... Um... Pac-Man fever, absolutely. I'm, you know, I would I would say I, I'm fine with not hearing it again for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But, yeah, uh... you, yeah, you and us as well. Um, of course, you did play 148 according to your Twitter account, 148 different versions. So I thought, was there any maybe sort of lesser known versions that you would like to draw our attention to? No, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think there are some old ones and some new ones. There was a, uh, there's a version of Miss Pac-Man uh, for the NES by Tengen, which is different 
than the regular Miss Pac-Man version done by Namco. And it has it had two player cooperative. Oh. So you could play two characters, Miss Pac-Man and Pac-Man oh. on the screen at the same time. And no one talks about that. That was yeah. the first mm. like, you know, video game. I think there was like handheld versions like the L, mm. you know, the fluorescent, the fluorescent version, you know, the little tabletop mm-hmm. arcade versions. You could do that. But this was the first straight up video game where you could do that. And it's super fun. It was really, really fun. And it, I was really impressed with that. Let's talk about the uh, the book. I, I understand that you managed to have access to some of the original team of, of coders at, at Namco. Um, did you manage to uncover any any secrets about the development of the game, given that it is such a well-known game? Was there any secrets, you know, that, that still to be uncovered? You know, I don't... I, if there were secrets, I wouldn't tell you because I'd make you read the book. But... <laughs> <laughs> nice but but for real you know i think less like real secrets and more like you know i think the typical story is you know tori iwatani gets a lot of credit for designing the game and rightfully so i mean it's amazing game he came in and he really had this vision for what pac-man could be but i mean there's a whole team involved right and so i think our desire is to really give all of them a little bit of their due yeah you know and that's just a little bit you know i think it was actually pretty challenging writing a book and researching a book during COVID when people were shut down. You know, we would have done a lot more flying on planes and being yes, in person. So, you know, I'd like to, I would have said I would have loved to do it slightly differently if we did more. But my, you know, my co-author, Arian Tepstra, really didn't. He really did the bulk of the, the work in the Japan side. So, you know, he's, you know, he had already been spending months, almost years researching and digging in and really trying to make sure that we kind of covered the the music, covered the graphics a little bit, talked about, you know, what was left in and what was left out. I think that was that's pretty interesting. The idea that there were much more sophisticated and complicated power ups, you know, where there would be opening and closing doors like in the code, there's actually uh a place where you know the ghosts come out of you know they spawn out of that middle uh that middle stage oh, really? right you know there's actually in the code there's actually a spot for that door to close really? right you know and like so there was there were other things that were sort of tried That's... you know they talked about you know the mazes changing oh you know some of these things opening and closing and you see that with some of namco's sequels right you know so, yeah of course which, and i think you see why they cut some of that stuff but i think it's really interesting to see what pac-man could have Would been. You, yeah. You alluded to you alluded to the fact that one of the secrets of its success is that it was simple. Uh, you know, even for its its time, it could have been more complicated. You're saying that you know some of the designs choices was let's keep it simple. Yeah. So, somebody had some forward thinking there. Yeah. You know, I think Tori Utani like that was his thing because you know they talked about should Pac Man have eyes? Should he have a nose? Should he have a mustache? <laughs> I mean, you know, and he felt very strongly. That, you know, it should be simple. And I think it comes out of this, you know, this sort of uh, Japanese tradition of simplicity and, uh, you know, this sort of minimal style. But also, you know, like it's still a cute game, right? You know, especially, you know, for for 1980, you know, it's very much comes from that, you know, sort of kawaii tradition of, uh, you know, very cute. You know, you got the big eyes, you got things that people connect with these characters and I think they knew that there was enough there. Yeah, yeah. Can I say I'm very relieved he didn't have a moustache in the end. That's, <laughs> that's really horrible, disturbing image. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of uh, myths I thought you might be able to confirm or dismiss. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the, that famous 
story about Toro Iwatani taking the slice out of the pizza and going, oh, there's Pac-Man there. I mean, I've always thought that sounded uh, too cheesy, and I'm not just talking about <laughs> the pizza. Is that It just sounds really, it just sounds really convenient. It, did that really happen? The way I can answer this question is this. Um, that was definitely the story from the beginning. Right. You know, that Tori Otani said that was the inspiration and he even talks very specifically about the pizza, the specific pizza place yeah, yeah. that he visited. It was a chain, you know, in Japan. OK, but there is a point where he kind of walked it back a little bit, you know, and this is a few years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the thing is, is, it's tough because there's only a couple of interviews where he it sounds like he's walking it back a little bit. Now it's unclear because we're talking, you know, 1985, mm-hmm. you know, these are translated interviews. Is there, you know, is there nuance in the translation that we're not getting, you know, because we can't go back and ask the, you know, the American interviewer. So it's, un- but there's a couple of places where it sounds like he's walking it back, um, you know, and then he's, he's asked about this several other times. And then we asked him, you know, in a couple of different ways, tell us this story. Is that true? And the answer is yes, it's true. So you know you can you can make your own draw your own conclusions, but you know that's the official sort of the, the word there. Well, yeah, another reason to buy this book so you can get it absolutely from the, the horse's mouth. And talking about mouth, one of the other um, uh, sort of myths legends about Pac Man is that they designed it to appeal to girls because, and I quote, "girls like eating." Um, is there any truth? To the idea that it was particularly marketed towards girls. I would say, I don't know that it was marketed towards girls, but I think, but Toru Iwatani was very clear in saying he wanted to do a different kind of game that wasn't, you know, now, you know, he says that, yes, those other games were more aggressive. They're more warlike. I mean, you have, you know, as he would say, and I think this is somewhat accurate, you have arcades, arcade rooms, invader rooms full of smelly, sweaty guys. Right. You know, and it's not a place that you'd bring your date, you know, so <laughs> while they, I wouldn't say they really marketed it towards women, like it wasn't it wasn't like, hey, you know, ladies, come out and play this. It was it was very much in the design. He wanted to do something different and it did end up appealing to women. But I, th- I think you I think that's really interesting because you look at the way Midway marketed Pac-Man. They were very aware of they were aware of some of that, I think, from uh, from Japan, but they really found that themselves. Mm. And I think that was part of the genius. And again, talking about Stan Jiraki, you know, you have the, the guys from GCC who create the speed up kit that ends up becoming Miss Pac-Man. But it's Stan Jiraki who says, yes. you know what? I like this guy, Crazy Otto. This is an interesting idea, but let's make it a woman. <laughs> you know, and I think that is amazing yeah. because he understood yeah. what was happening yeah. there and, and what was happening in that game. You know, and, and it's kind of sad because you'd like to say in some alternate universe. And that was the last time that that women, you know, were underrepresented in video games. And now mm. all video games are mm. for all sexes and there's, there's something for everyone. You know, sadly, like those lessons were not exactly learned. Yeah, so there's perhaps a missed opportunity there. Yes, I, I see what you're saying. Um, another famous uh, thing about Pac-Man is, of course, uh, it crashes. Uh, in the end, um, you know, you have to go through 256 screens, but then you get this infamous split screen, which essentially when the game, you know, you cannot complete the split screen. When you were doing the research for this book, you know, and you were talking to the, the creators, did you sense they had any idea that the game was eventually going to crash. They were not aware of that, you know, and I think, 
I think this is the interesting thing. People assume that video game developers are really good at their own games, right? You know, and I, I mean, and that makes sense. I mean, I, that's an assumption <laughs> right. that I probably would have made, but I found that that's just not true. You know, like making a game and playing the game are different things. And, you know, I, Steve Golson, you know, I, who I also talked to extensively for this book, you know, who was part of the Miss Pac-Man team, you know, he's like, no, why, why would I try and get to be really good at Miss Pac-Man? I could just go in the code and go to the next level and check something out. I'm not going <laughs> to sit there and play it all day. I mean, it was very I was refreshingly practical. I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, th- the fact that it does crash, that the game does end, means that, of course, an end to the game means that there is a perfect score, which has become the other big thing associated with Pac-Man. You can achieve the perfect game. So this is where I ask you about Billy Mitchell. Yes. Um, first of all, did you did you interview him at all for this book? I did. Inter- I interviewed Billy before this book was an actual thing. Like I was working on a different version of this book and I, I spent a you know, a couple hours with Billy and uh, with, you know, with some of those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, I felt like the all the things surrounding the first perfect game, uh, you know, the quest for this, it felt to me like a rabbit hole that I, you know, and <laughs> exactly, you know, and I think it's I think it's fascinating. And I think for us, who are sort of on the inside of, you know, of the sort of, you know, the subculture. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's very interesting and people get very heated about this, right? You know, people have strong opinions on different sides. They do. But to me, at the end of the day, to track that all down and figure it out, what was basically going to be a sidebar in this book, yeah. at the end of the day, it just felt like we wanted to focus on something else. I, I agree. And I actually don't think there's a right answer. I don't think you would ever get to the bottom of that. Right, that's what I was worried about. But is that more? Is that to do with? Is that to do with the the facts, or is that to do with Billy not wanting to let you get to the answer? Double point. <laughs> I, I think it's. I think it's both. I mean, I. Well, you know, I won't say. I will say this. I don't. You know, I want to give Billy Mitchell the benefit of the doubt. He was nothing but nice. You know, with me when we talked. I mean, he and he's an incredible player. Yeah. You know, and he, but he also has a personal brand. Yes. You know, and I think some you're you're communicating how you know who you are in the modern gaming sphere but you know there are articles you know from you know newspaper articles from 1982 1983 of people who talk about yeah you know i was playing the game until it freaked out yeah you know and like you know and you hear whispers of this in like you know the letters pages in early gaming magazines it was it was in the air and i think some people had done it but at the end of the day it felt like you know just being practical and this sounds really mercenary but the amount of time that we would spend to make sure we got that right just didn't seem to make that much sense. No, I, I totally understand. And can I just say, Billy's been nothing but nice to uh, the three people of this podcast as well. Let's have that on record. Totally. So that is a, a another um, video game book that you've completed, due out this um, summer. Um, what's next, Tim? Have you got another game in mind or maybe another iconic company? I don't, you know, it's funny because... People assume that I am this incredible gamer, <laughs> you know, and I have this deep knowledge of, which is all true, of course. Of course. But, <laughs> you know, that I have this deep knowledge all the way across video games. You know, I have friends who are modern gamers and they're like, what do you think of this, you know, the latest Call of Duty or, you know, your version, you know, some newspaper in, uh, you mm. know, in Spain, you know, they wanted to, what did you think about the new Atari VCS? And I'm like, I, 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 don't, I can, I have, I have opinions. Everybody's got opinions. 
But, you know, my focus is really, I really try and own this, right? Like, I like video games. I grew up with them. I love some of these games. Yeah. But, you know, I'm coming at it from from a, a design, design and historical standpoint, you know, and as soon as you go to more than like, you know, a handful of buttons on the controller, um, you know, I'm not your guy anymore. So, you know, for so you look at what I've, the games that I've been, you know, sort of associated with these books, you know, Atari, it's about the art and design. Uh, Pac-Man, it's about the cultural impact and the, you know, the Chicago connection, you know, the book we did with street fighter. I helped edit that. That was really much about capturing a subculture, yeah. right. You know, how the sort of the competitive gaming got its start, you know, and, and the Renaissance of the arcades in the nineties. So it had these very specific through lines that I'm really interested in. So I, you know, I will continue to, you know, be a part of this, you know, but maybe, you know, maybe I'll be looking at something else. Maybe in the next book will be about, you know, the, the visual history of MTV or, uh, you know, G.I. Joe or something like that. You know, these other sort of, you know, vintage, you know, 80s pop culture icons that sort of have had an impression on, uh, you know, on the culture. Well, wh- whatever you do, we wish you every, every success. Yeah, absolutely. OK, uh, Tim, thank you. Thank you so much. Genuinely, that's that's been absolute gold. I've really enjoyed that. Thanks Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's um, thank you so much. Thank you guys. It was a privilege, and I had a lot of fun talking to you guys. Yeah, likewise, Tim. Just to echo that, I, I, um, we spoke earlier about the imagination gap, and I, and I think the work you've done so far and will continue to do, no doubt, will fill in an awful lot of those gaps that a lot of us have and, and possibly didn't even think of. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor. Thank you.